We are in the next section of Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And this is called John, the one who goes before. So this section is an introduction to John's actual ministry, which will lead up to the baptism of Jesus Christ. So the outcome of John's ministry takes two forms. First, he attracts hostility leading to his imprisonment. And one of the things that this is going to do is show that one of the themes that we're going to see in Luke is that Jesus says, you killed all the prophets before me, and you will keep doing it the same way because you are stiff-necked, hard-hearted, wicked people. And so the fact that John is going, his preaching, according to the, the prophetic fulfillment of God, is going to lead to hostility against him and leads to his death, not only fulfills the pattern of Israel killing their prophets, but also foreshadows what we should expect of Jesus to come. The second is that it paves the way for Jesus' ministry by providing a crisis, directing the people's hopes towards the coming deliverer. So John's whole idea is to like get in their face and, and like shake them hard and help them realize that like life is not good, that what they're doing is not right, you need to repent, and so that they will have this like um, crisis. They'll have this moment where they'll realize that they need to do something, and then Jesus shows up, and he begins to lead them. And we kind of already mentioned this before, but John represents the prophet of the Old Covenant, the First Testament. So Malachi was the last of the prophets before that 400 silent years. He was the last to prophesy the coming of God's plan of redemption. But John is the one who comes, and he breaks that silence, and he acts just like a First Testament Mosaic Covenant prophet. And the job of the prophet was to speak the will of God to the people because he was on the divine council of Yahweh and he knew the will of God. But he also was like the, the covenant watchdog. He was the one that made sure that everybody understood what the covenant expected. And then he guided you when you were off the rails, so to speak. And when you refused to turn back, then he basically judged you and condemned you, either through words of prophecy that this is going to come one day, as in the, pro the, the prophet who goes to Jeroboam, the prophet goes to Ahijah, or literally pulling his sword out and killing you like Samuel. So either way, that was his job. But that's the Mosaic Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant always brings death, because none of us can meet that. So Jesus represents the prophet of the New Covenant. So John the Baptizer is the last of the Old Covenant prophets. And when he gets to Jesus' baptism, he's going to pass the torch off to Jesus and usher in a new era, a new kingdom, a new way of thinking. And, and so Jesus is going to bring redemption. And redemption means that the law will still bring death, but now when you realize you're facing death, there's now a new covenant that you can embrace, which will bring life. And so the law is still valid. It's still important. But the law never was meant to save us. It was never to bring us into an intimate relationship with God. It was meant to reveal our sin and that we were under the judgment of God so that we would flee and cling to God for salvation. And now Jesus, God, has come to give us that. And so this is John's purpose. As he is the law. He is the fire that's going to light it underneath them so they will run into the arms of the Messiah. And this is the point of his ministry here. So it's a passing of the torch to a new era, a new guard, so to speak. 
So chapter 3, verse 1. In the fifteenth year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Etura, and Trachnasus, and Lysanasus, and, was te- and Lysanasus was tetrarch of Albania. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Once again, we get a whole bunch of names. This is going to be one of the last times in Luke's gospel that we're going to get a bunch of Roman historical political names. And that's because we're, we're pretty much going to camp out. And I, from this point on, we're all, everything is going to take place within a three-year period. And so there's not going to be a lot of changing of the guard of the Roman Empire anymore. But once again, the point of giving all these names is to root Jesus into the historical time frame of our history. Uh, unlike Buddha and unlike the, the, the avatars of Hinduism and unlike all these other people, they're mythological beings or the pagan gods are mythological beings and they're not rooted, they're just ideas. And so Jesus is very much rooted in history. Caesar Augustus is no longer emperor. He has been replaced by Tiberius. Now Tiberius seems to be an extreme introvert. He kind of just withdrew. He was, he preferred the life of contemplation, meditation, and he really was never interested in running or ruling the empire to begin with, but he just kind of was thrusted into that. He took it, and he spent pretty much most of his time just in seclusion, reading and studying and all that kind of stuff, and so the empire pretty much at this point was pretty much self-governing itself. Caesar Augustus did a really good job of establishing a well-oiled machine. And so because of that, all the governors and prefects and all that kind of stuff pretty much ran it. And one of these guys that started taking Tiberius's job and running it, and Tiberius didn't care, was Sejanus. And Sejanus was known for hating the Jews. He absolutely despised them. He was anti-Semitic. Now, he was nowhere close to the Jews. He was in Rome. But he appointed a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. And we're going to talk about Pontius Pilate a lot more when we get to the actual crucifixion. But right now you need to know, Pontius Pilate really likes just ticking people off so he can kill them. And so he's kind of on his last strike. And he's already been kind of like moved to different places. And you know in the movies when somebody does something in the government and they don't like it or they want him to be the fall guy but they can't really like get rid of him publicly because that'll make him a martyr or call attention so they're like, ship him off to Alaska. That's what Israel is. It's ship him off to Israel. Nobody wants to go there. Nobody wants to do anything. And nobody likes the Jews because they're a pain in the butt politically and they're always angry at every little thing about Rome. And so you send them there. Usually they send there because nobody wants to be there, and they usually know how to keep their peace because they know if they screw this up, it's over with. But Sejanus appointed Pontius Pilate because Pontius Pilate was notorious for ticking people off so he could kill them, so he thought this would be a great powder keg. And he knew that Pontius Pilate would eventually get sacked, but in politics, they don't care about each other. They just have their ideology and their agenda. So that's kind of what's going on here. Now, for a long time, a lot of people are like, oh, Pontius Pilate didn't exist. A big giant prefect like that would be like noticeable, right? And then they discovered all these historical documents about things that he did and this horrible thing here. And they're like, oh, but we already talked about that. That's pretty typical. Herod is the son of Herod the Great, the Herod that basically killed all the Hebrew boys in Bethlehem. 
So when Herod died, he appointed his kingdom. He broke it up as among his three sons, Herod, and then Philip, and then Archelaus. So Archelaus got Judea. Herod got Galilee in the north, so Judea in the south, where Jerusalem is and all that kind of stuff. Herod got Galilee in the north, where the Sea of Galilee is, and Caesarea Philippi, and all that kind of stuff. And then Philip got on the eastern side of the Jordan River, the Transjordan region. But Archelaus was all another one of those guys. He was a psychopath. He liked just ticking people off so he could kill them. And there's a bunch of instances. We kind of talked about a few of them in the intertestamental history. And so Rome quickly sacked him. Because Rome was okay with you killing people as long as killing people keeps the peace. But when they find out that you're taking off people just so you can kill them, and then that's not keeping the peace, and they don't like that either. So they got rid of him, and that's when they begin to replace them with prefix, Roman prefix, and that's Pontius Pilate. And so they basically decided, okay, we need Jewish kings down there. Herod is doing a great job, and we need somebody who gets the juice. So we're going to keep Philip and Herod. Philip was actually loved by the people. He was like, like psychologically normal. So, and the people liked him. He lived with the people well. The people liked him, that kind of stuff. But he doesn't show up in the Gospels because... Jesus never goes to the Transjordan region. They replaced him with Pontius Pilate, so they decided, or they actually replaced him with these Roman prefects, which is the same thing as a procurator, which is the same thing as a governor. But basically the difference between a governor and a prefect or a procurator is a governor is just a politician who is a Roman citizen who has Rome's interest in mind, where a prefect or a procurator was someone who served in the military. And they got high, high, high ranks for their military service. And then they went into state politics. And so they have, they have an extra higher status as a military warrior who proved himself as a general in wars and many victories. And then they become a governor. So that's Pontius Pilate. And so these, these prefix were placed. And there was three or four before Pontius Pilate. Now it's like we need somebody who understands Rome as well and will represent Roman interests. And so the idea is that the people who get the Jews, Herod, and the people who get Rome, the prefix, will work side by side to try to govern this powder keg of Israel. And so this is what is being described here. And of course, these figures are very essential to the crucifixion. The next two are Ananias or Annas and Caiaphas. One of the things that the prefix came in is they had, normally the high priest would just be the next person um, in the line of long high priests. But that kind of got messed up a lot with Antiochus IV, who just kind of sold it to the highest bidder back in 160s BC. But when Rome came along, they kind of returned it back to, you got it because of your father, whatever. But one of the jobs of the prefect was to point the high priest. Rome decided that that was a, the high priest at that point was religious and political. And so whoever can control religion and politics, they're the ones who have power. Today, it's politics and media. That's our religion. That governs everything, the celebrities and media and kind of stuff. So whoever controls those two things, they have the power. And we know that from watching the news. The idea was, if you're in control of picking who the high priest is, then you're in control of those two mediums, religion and politics. Annas was the high priest. He had been high priest for many, many, many years. And he was one of the very few, because when the prefix came in, one of the things they did is they got rid of the high priest and replaced him with a new one every single year. And that was basically to keep the Jews on edge. 
and they keep to refuse to allow stability in the nation in any kind of way. And it also made sure that the, the high priests would be bowing to the will of Rome because there's no point in trying to establish a power base and try to manipulate Rome and get yourself rooted in because you knew you were only going to last a year. But Annas lasted for over 14 years, which suggests that he was really good at just doing what Rome wanted. And as a result, Rome gave him a lot of power too, but that was okay because Annas never, ever did anything that Rome didn't want, which meant their wills were pretty much in alignment, which is most people saw Annas as a traitor. And so he's controlling everything. He eventually got, he retired or was replaced by his nephew, Caiaphas. Now he was actually replaced by a couple of his sons, but they got sacked really quickly. And then he got replaced by Caiaphas, his son-in-law, or nephew, we're not exactly sure which one he was, according to the documents. And Caiaphas stayed there for a long time too, which suggests that he worked really well with Annas and really well with Rome as well. Now, when it says that Annas and Caiaphas were in power, they had the priesthood, because you never really stop being the priest even though you're replaced, kind of like the president when they still call him Mr. President. The difference is Annas still carried his power. And there seems to be a lot of evidence in the documents that Caiaphas kind of went would never do anything that Annas didn't want to be done. And Annas worked really well with Rome. And so Caiaphas just seemed to be more of a figurehead to Annas and because it was a family. And they pretty much did everything as a family. So think of mafia, that even though you might have your nephew or whatever ruling over something, the nephew never stops out of the godfather's shadow and do anything. If he does, he gets whacked. So that's kind of the idea here. So this is why Annas is still going to play a huge role as the puppet master during Jesus' trial, even though technically he's going to be standing before Caiaphas under judgment and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's politics. This is the situation we're looking at, and these names are significant because these people are going to be responsible, whether directly or indirectly, for the death of Jesus by where they sit. These are the people. Verse 3, So the word of God came to John. He went into the region around Jordan River, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book, the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of the one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight, every valley will be filled, every mountain wind hill will be brought low, and the crooked will be made straight, and the rough ways will be made smooth, and all humanity will see the salvation of God. God is now ready for John's ministry to begin. And he comes out of the wilderness. And we've already talked about what that means as possibly from the Qumran community and the representative Elijah. And he goes to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is, what's interesting is all throughout the First Testament, the Jews begin to ignore the Jordan River and everything that was east of it because those were the two and a half tribes that kind of didn't really want to dwell in the land with everybody else. And there created this political division between them. And, and civil war erupted many times throughout the judges and Samuel and that kind of stuff. But John is placing right there in the Jordan River. And one of the things that this is doing is, one, the water is representative of life in the Holy Spirit, baptism and that idea. The Jordan River is very much uh, the idea of crossing into the promised land through the, uh, the parting of the, the Jordan River, which goes back into the parting of the Red Sea and that kind of stuff. 
But the other thing it does is it puts them right there between these two divided parts of Israel. They've had multiple civil wars. And remember, the prophecy was that John would come and he would bring fathers and sons back together and he would restore the communities and, and he would basically bring unity back to the people and prepare the way for the Messiah. And so here he is in the greatest political rift between the Israelites and he's doing his ministry right there. So it's a physical, practical location. It's a political unity kind of a thing. And it's a spiritual baptism kind of an idea. And he begins to preach the forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, repentance is turning away from your sins. I think we've all grown up in school class enough to hear that. But it's the idea of acknowledging that what you have done is not in alignment with the will of God. And then you turn away from what you have been doing that's contrary to the will of God in a sacrificial kind of a way. And that sacrificial kind of way is it's not just enough to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. It's, that I'm, it's, it's Jacob who's worshiping idols and he buries the idols. And that's a huge sacrifice because that's money, that's time, and if you're wrong, that's the wrath of the gods. And so it's that idea that you don't just turn away from what you've done, but you sacrifice it. You sacrifice the energy and the time that you've poured into that sin, the, 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 the things that you've built up in your life. And sometimes it even requires maybe you have a little less freedom in your life because you now need fences and boundaries to keep you from going back into that life again. And so this is the idea of repentance and then forgiveness, that this will no longer be held against you anymore. This will no longer be the way people look at you anymore. Well, God, the way that God will no longer. And really the definition of forgiveness really has to do with the idea that God no longer will demand his pound of flesh from you. He will no longer demand you to suffer or to pay the consequences in some kind of a way. And on a human level, it means that I no longer will require you to suffer emotionally, physically, reputation-wise, or whatever for what you did to me. And it means that when you walk in the room, I don't have to trust you. I don't have to like you. I don't even have to really be around you. But my fist no longer clenches an anger and resentment when you walk in. I can truly look at you and say, I care about you and I wish the best for you. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to trust you. Now, trust is possible through Christ and God, but not necessary for forgiveness. And so this is what God is. This is John's message. You turn from your destructive ways that have created a rift between you and God and other people and response God will no longer demand judgment for you and there is no wrath there is no emotional hatred or bitterness or anger or whatever towards you because of what you've done the author Luke quotes Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 through 5 and we've already talked about this passage where basically he is the one who makes the path as easy and as obstacle-free and as um, tension-free to come to God. All Every mountain, every valley that gets in your way, you know, like, I'll climb the highest mountain to be with you. Like, all those obstacles that you need to go through are going to be removed so that for the first time ever, there will be nothing that will hinder their way to come to God. There, there's nothing that will be in their way. And specifically, this is your heart. The hardness of heart is going to be made fertile. There's also an exodus pattern happening here too because 
He is calling you out of your slavery to Egypt, sin, and death, and into this promised land in order to be with God, a good relationship with God. And remember, technically, Israel has not come out of exile. Even though they physically have returned from exile back to the promised land. Remember, we talked about this. The promised land, God's glory has not returned to the promised land. And God's glory is not filling the temple. And the prophets are just now beginning to speak. So technically, they have not come out of exile. So chapter 3, verse 7. So John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, therefore produce fruit that proves repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God can raise up children from Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Just like a good First Testament prophet, he's ready to rip them a new one. And so he comes in, and he basically calls them a brood of vipers. And a brood of vipers, we all know, is like a viper's children, the little infant children. And the viper represents chaos. It represents disorder, the serpent in the garden and the Leviathan in Isaiah 27 and the dragon in the book of Revelation. And specifically, it also over time becomes associated with even evil. That there's, there's, there, chaos can either just be disorder, like walking into a bedroom where everything is all over the place, but that's necessarily evil. For some of you, you're like, yes, it is. Um, or it could be the chaos that evil does produce, what murder and corruption and, 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 and all that kind of stuff produces, the chaos. And so chaos is an umbrella term for things that are neutral or evil in their disorder. And so because so much of chaos is evil because of our nature, the serpent also started becoming associated with evil. At best, he's calling them children of chaos, where everywhere they go, they just bring chaos and disorder to everything, which is completely contrary to the God who brought order to creation and brought morning to the evening and all that kind of stuff and light to the darkness. At worst, he's calling them children of the devil, children of evil. Probably take your guess of where he wants to be with that. And so he starts his ministry off of that, and he's referring to everyone in Israel. This would be shocking because remember, we talked about the fact that the Jew, especially the male Jew, especially the wealthy and healthy Jew, who was part of the Abrahamic covenant, truly believed that they were already saved. And that the only thing they had to do was just live in reflection of that. If they just were circumcised and they did their best to adhere to the law and they adhered to the sacrificial system, and as long as they never got unhealthy or they never got sick and never lost their money, they would be... A great evidence that they were in. And for them, most of the Jews were like that. Most of the Jews were healthy. Most of the Jews had a reasonable amount of money or were not like starving to death. And so for him to call them this would be absolutely shocking. Okay, It would be like somebody coming into our church who everybody loves and respects and have acknowledged as a prophet, and they're like, none of you are saved. That would be absolutely shocking and horrific. And... Most people respond in hostility. How dare you say that? But at the same time, he's doing things that seem to be fulfilling Scripture. 
and the, the hand of God is truly with him. And so then you've got to reconcile all that. And see, so it says, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And the idea is not like, who told you this? You should have never known this. The idea is, do you know who spoke of the coming judgment as a come? It's the prophets. It's God through this prophets. Do you understand, you people who think that everything is okay, that think that you're already saved, that you're already in, do you forget that the prophets said that you are sinful, that the wrath of God is on you, that you went into exile, and then when you went into exile, you came back out of exile, but the, the glory of God never returned? And when you all went to Zechariah, the prophet, and you asked him, is this the time the kingdom of God is going to come, according to the prophets? And, and God's glory hasn't returned. And Zechariah basically turned to you and said, the glory of God and the kingdom of God will come when you start showing faith when you actually learn from the exile, when you learn and you realize that the reason God hasn't come back is because you have no faith. It's not that God has abandoned you, but you've abandoned him. And so have you not paid attention to the prophets if the glory of God hasn't come back in 400 years? Then you're under the wrath of God. And yet you don't live and act like that. And you have this superiority complex and this pride that you're in and there's nothing you can do to get out. And so remember who warned you of the coming wrath. Remember the prophets. Look around you. You're under the Roman Empire. You've gotten used to this and complacent, but you're under the wrath of God. And he reiterates that by saying, don't even begin to think that just because you're descendants of Abraham that you're in. We talked about this already too. Remember, they thought that because they're descendants of Abraham and they had the law, they were automatically saved. They were the chosen people. And so John is refuting that. He's not saying, oh, because you think you have good works, you're saved. He's saying, because you think you're a descendant of Abraham, you're saved. And he literally says, you think being a descendant of Abraham makes you so special that you're automatically in the kingdom of God because of that? I tell you that God can make Abraham's descendants of Abraham out of these rocks over here. There's nothing special about your genetics. There's nothing special about your bloodline or your ethnicity. It's always been about faith. And that has been proven by the fact that Rahab has come into the faith, Tamar had came into faith, and, and Ruth, and it, um, Ittite, the Gittite, and Arana, the Jebusite, and Uriah, the Hittite, and we can go on and on and on. The, the countless people that came out of Egypt and joined Israel. And the fact, the fact that the genealogy makes it very clear that Tamar, a Canaanite, and Ruth, a Moabite, and Rahab, a Canaanite, are in the bloodline of Jesus, means that Jesus is not even 100% ethnically Jewish, biologically Jewish. That alone makes his argument, though they won't like Jesus either, but for us it makes the argument that it's always been about faith and not about genetics or ethnicity or being Abraham. And so he makes it clear, don't think that the fact that you're chosen means that you're okay. Everybody has to repent. Everybody. There's nothing special about your gender, your ethnicity, your social status, your health, your checking account, your skill, your intelligence. There's nothing. It's only faith. And then he makes it clear the axe is at the tree. Now this is going back into Isaiah chapter 6 and 7. In Isaiah chapter 6 and 7, Isaiah comes and he warns that the tree is Israel. 
And they are, they already know this. Trees often represented nations and life and the people of God, whether you're the people of the Babylonian gods in Babylon or the people of Yahweh God. But all throughout the ancient world, trees represented nations and they represented the people of God. And they were because of life and because they produce fruit and because they produce a home. Isaiah comes along and prophesies that the axe has cut down the tree of Israel. And that the tree has been banned, bronzed, judged. And the idea is that the, the axe that cut him down was Assyria. The Assyrian Empire was the axe that God used to cut down the tree of Israel and took them into exile. And then he comes to Judah and he warns that the axe is coming for them. And the axe is Babylon. And it's coming for them. But in Isaiah chapter 7, he promises that no, that though the tree is going to get cut down, a shoot of Jesse, of David, will begin to regrow out of the true tree trunk again and grow again. And that's the idea of them coming back from exile. And so they would know that after all these years, that little shoot has become a big tree again. And they are a tree. But John is warning them, no, 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 no. Just like it came twice, the axe through the Assyrians and the Babylonians, it can come a third time too. And that third time is Rome. And the axe is already here. And the axe is already pulled back, ready to chop. And if you don't repent, then the axe is going to come. And this is going to be carried on later when Jesus sees the fig tree. And the fig tree, along with the grapevine, was the national symbol of Israel. And when he sees the fig tree, he knows it's not bearing any fruit. And Jesus then curses the fig tree, and it withers up and dies. And then he comes back later, and it's withered up, and he curses it. And basically, that's when he starts going into the idea of, when the times of trouble come, flee to the hills. And I tell you that not one stone on this temple mount will be left standing on top of another. And when that happens, and they cry peace, you better run, because it's not peace for you. It's judgment day. And Jesus makes it very clear that the fig tree has not been producing fruit. And no matter how many years he's been with them, preaching to them and healing them and all that kind of stuff, they have not repented. They have not come back to them. They still just think they're okay because they're Jews. And Jesus then curses the fig tree and it withers up and dies. And then he makes it very clear judgment is coming. And 70 AD, the temple was torn down. And that has a greater theological significance, too, that we're going to talk about later. But the temple's torn down, and a lot of Jews died on that day under the hand of the Romans. And it was almost like they got another chance because they didn't take it. And in 135 AD, the Romans just completely massacred a whole bunch of them and drove all the Jews out of the land, the ones that they hadn't killed. And that led to the scattering of what we then had, like the Jews in Russia and Germany and Poland and Romania and all that kind of stuff all throughout Europe. And so this is what he's warning. The axe is here, and they should know it. They, if they know Isaiah, which every teacher does, and everybody at least can quote Isaiah in a lot of different ways, they should know what he's saying here. And so he tells them, until you produce fruit, the axe is going to be hovering. The axe is going to be hovering. And the only thing that can make the axe of Rome go away and be replaced with the kingdom of God is if you produce fruit. And the only thing that can produce fruit is not your works, but repentance. Repentance. That's the fruit that he's talking about. And that's the only fruit that any of us can repent or produce. It's when we repent 
and submit to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit can start then working the fruits of the Spirit in our life. But when we think we can do it on our own, then the fruit that we produce might be nourishing to people for a moment, but not life-giving for truly down into the soul and forever. And then he makes it very clear that you're not just going to be cut down, but the tree is going to be thrown into the fire. Because once a tree is cut down, that's all it's really good for. The idea is judgment day. 